Well, thank you all, and uh, thank you for having me uh, here. Uh, as I said, my name is Brandon. Uh, I'm married to Amanda. We have four kids. We'll chat about them in a minute. I spent about 15 years pastoring in the Acts 29 uh, world. True story, the guy who preached here last week, Josh Patterson, uh, was actually my boss in Dallas, uh, and I promise you, he likes me a lot more now that I don't work for him. Uh, then I went and pastored a church in Houston uh, for about eight years, and then a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago, I got a, I got a call from uh, Dusty Thompson, the founder of Redeemer Network, uh, with an invitation to come and, and serve uh, this network. And uh, I love the Redeemer Network. Uh, one of the reasons uh, I wanted to take the position, one of the things I love most about the Redeemer Network is that we never set out to start an organization. That, that was never the plan. Uh, 2008, our first church was planted, and then they planted another church a couple years later, and then that church was planting a church, and they called and said, hey, can we do this together? Uh, and then that collaborative spirit uh, became two, became 10, became uh, 27. We're planting churches 28, 29, and 30 right now as we speak. Uh, we have four that have not made it because church planting is hard. But I love the Redeemer Network, uh, including Redeemer Midlands. Okay, uh, he, here was my assignment this morning. Uh, my, my assignment this morning was to preach on, to teach on God's heart for the nations. God's heart for men, women, and children from every nation under the sun. And I'm, I'm going to do that eventually. But I want to start like this. Uh, I want to start with addressing one of what is humanity's fundamental questions. One of the questions that sits at the core of every human heart, every human civilization, every world religion, and it's this. Who does God accept and why? Who, who does God accept and on what basis does he accept them? If there is a God who loves and embraces people, and in a room this size, I don't assume that everyone believes that there is a God who loves and embraces people. But uh, I'm going to ask you for the next 25 minutes to just go with me and make that assumption, make that leap with me. But if there's a God who loves and embraces people, then who are the people that God loves and embraces and why? Um, Luce Ferry uh, is a French atheist philosopher, and so I'm, I'm obviously not pronouncing his name correctly, but I am Texan, and that's all I've got to offer there. He, he says, uh, he's, he's been so helpful to me in understanding the world. He, he says that all of the world, all of religion, all of philosophy is, is, is trying to deal with this reality, is trying to deal with the reality of death. All of philosophy says, all of religion is looking out at the world, seeing death coming, and saying, if, if there is a God, if this God is real, how can I know that I'm accepted by him? When, when I die, how will I know that I am embraced by this God? Let me give you an example. Um, I, I grew up in a pretty agnostic family. Uh, we, we weren't exactly the Christmas Easter kind of family. We were more Christmas Easter every other year kind of family. But I grew up in a pretty rough part of Houston. Any, any Houstonians here? Any, a few hands. Hobby Airport, if that means anything to you, that's, that's where I grew up. And so my mom said private Catholic school for you. Uh, and then I'm in pre-K, which I believe was five. Uh, and my teacher, I can still remember it, she, she puts the ashes on my forehead for Ash Wednesday. And I looked at her and I, and I just said, what, what is this for? And her answer was this, it's so that when you die, 
you'll go to heaven. Now I'm five, and so all I heard was die, and I freaked out. True story, that I called my mom out of work to come and get me, take me home for the day. Now, I obviously have problems with that answer, and I'm not disparaging my, my Catholic school upbringing. I, I grew up believing that Jesus equals God is true, and I did not get that in my home. I got that in school that I went to. But what was she doing? What, what was she doing? I mean, she doesn't know this, but, but this is what she was doing. She was answering the question, who does God accept and why? In this question, this question it is not abstract theology. It is not abstract theology debated among philosophers and theologians in dusty textbooks. Here's what I know, and here's what you know. It's personal. It's real. How do I know that I am accepted by God? How do I know? This might be the most important question you can ask and to answer, when you are alone and you cannot escape your thoughts, when there is not enough TV to drown what is happening in your soul, and that question sits there lingering, how can I know that I'm accepted by God? It is incredibly personal. And the text we're looking at today, Galatians 3, to quote one commentator, one theologian, it's answering the question, who does God accept and why? And when it answers that question, it's going to take us right into the heart of God's heart for the nations. Sound good? We ready? Let's talk Galatians. Um, Galatians is a book in the New Testament. The, the New Testament's written after Jesus came. Uh, it's written by a man named Paul. Here in much of the New Testament. And the primary focus of the book of Galatians was this. It was getting the gospel right. It was making sure that the gospel was accurate and clearly understood. The Christian message was right. What happened was after these churches in this, this region of Galatia were, were started, so people came in, they were pretty influential, uh, and they, they started distorting the Christian message. They were distorting it in a very seductive kind of way, which I'll explain in a minute. And Paul is writing to clarify and so we're going to dive in in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's how Paul begins chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now let's pause right there. Can we all agree this is not good? Like this is not a good start to chapter 3. If Paul the apostle is saying to you, hey, you foolish one, who bewitched you? This is not a good start. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Now, there, there is a lot happening in these five verses, and we are taking the helicopter approach to this chapter, these first 14 verses that we're going to look at, where you kind of see the major movements. And here's what's happening if we take the helicopter view of these five verses. He, he opens with a series of questions, a series of repetitive questions 
one after another, question after question, that are targeted questions. They are intended to draw a distinction, a distinction between the two primary approaches to a relationship with God. And if you scan, if you scan world religions, if you scan the Bible, you're going to find two primary approaches when it comes to approaching and embracing and having a relationship with God. Here's approach number one. Approach one is works. A set of rituals, a set of do's and don'ts, things that you're supposed to do to know that you are accepted living a certain way. But if you do enough, you'll know I'm accepted. And here's the other. Option two, faith, belief, trust. And let me tell you why this was such a seductive message, what they were preaching. Some of this group came in, they, they came in, they had a very attractive message. They were coming in, they were distorting the gospel. But, but, but here's why it was so seductive. Because they were not saying to get rid of Jesus. They, they didn't show up to these Christian churches and say, hey, listen, you, you've got it all wrong. That you, listen, the, the Jesus guy, he was a good teacher, but you've got it all wrong. They were not saying to get rid of Jesus. They were saying, of course you need Jesus. Of course, but you also need circumcision. That you want to know that you're accepted by God, that God's going to love and embrace you, that you have done what is right in God's eyes. Of course you need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus circumcision. A Jesus plus how I live message in all of its forms was a attractive and seductive message then and now, and it is alive and well in me and in you today. Jesus plus how I live to know that God is pleased with me, that God is happy with me. And here's what it looks like today. For This is not the sum total of what this looks like, but here's a couple of examples. The default posture of our heart to go, listen, I know that God is happy with me. I know that God loves me, that he's pleased with me, that he's happy with me. When, of course, of course, Jesus Plus, being a good mom. Or you ladies, being able to juggle all of the balls of life that you have to juggle. If I'm balancing those balls, I keep the plates spinning, I know God is pleased. Jesus plus being a good dad. Jesus plus being a good husband and good provider. Or Jesus plus being better than that guy down the road from me. Like looking out at the world, even looking around Redeemer Midland and going, listen, I, I may not have been the top third in my class graduating high school or college, but I'm top third morality in this room right now. Jesus plus how I live. It was a seductive message then and now. And Paul is going to counter this message by taking us back to the beginning of the Bible, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So when he references Abraham, this takes us back to the beginning of the Bible. Here's how the Bible began. The opening chapters of the Bible were, were what went wrong with the world and with the human race. And so Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. Genesis 3 uh, sin enters the world. One chapter later, we have our first murder. Then we have a flood, and then we have the Tower of Babel, and then God scattering humanity. And then we hit Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we have a turning point in the story. 
where God comes to a man named Abram who would become Abraham, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your home, and I want you to go to a foreign land. I want you to leave everything that you know, and I want you to go to a foreign land, and in this foreign land, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And those who bless you, Abraham, I'm going to bless, and those who dishonor you, I'm going to curse. And then in verse 4 of chapter 12, it says, so Abraham went as the Lord told him. And when Paul is, is saying that he believed God and it was counted as righteousness, he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. And this word righteousness, it's a highly relational term. When, when we hear righteous, um, our, our default is what? Self. Let's do that again. Our, our default is self Righteous, there we go. That, that's not what's really going on here. Uh, maybe at its root it is, but, but that's not what's happening here. This, this word righteous, it's a highly relational term. You, you can see it in the scene with Abraham and God. This bless you, those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to, to, to curse. It's a highly, highly relational term. And when it says he was counted righteous, it meant that the relationship between God and Abraham, it was right. It was as it should be. It was as it ought to be. The relationship was good. Let me, let me illustrate. Um, if I get into a, a fight with my wife, and I'm right, which unofficially never happens. Let me back up. Officially never happens. Unofficially, y'all know. If she listens, I do apologize. Do I want to hear her say, Brandon, you're right? Absolutely, I do. Every single time, I want to hear, you are right. Brandon, my husband, you, of course, are right again. I want to hear that. But if she says to me, Brandon, you, you know what, you're right. But I still don't want to talk to you. Is that a win? No, because what do I want? I want my wife back. I want my wife to be willing to look at me. I want her to be willing to talk to me. I want her to make up with me. I feel like that should have gotten at least one amen in the room. <laughs> Paul is looking at Abraham's relationship with God and saying it's based on believing, trusting. And of course he acted, but that's not the foundation, the basis of this relationship with God. It was believing and relationship made right, righteous. Now let's keep reading verse eight. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then who, so then those who are the faith, who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is a profound little statement in the Bible right here, that the gospel was preached to Abraham, and the gospel was that in you all nations shall be blessed. And it's saying that when God looked out at the world, when God scanned the horizon of the world that would be, seeing that he would justify Gentiles, that he would bring them into a relationship with God. He preached the gospel to Abraham and said, in you all nations shall be blessed. Now who are these Gentiles? 
Gentiles are people from nations other than Israel. Now, a couple of really fascinating things happening. First off, there, at this point in the story, Genesis 12, um, there, there is no Israel yet, for one. Two, um, the word nations and Gentiles. In Galatians 3, it's the same word. It's the same word, ethnos. He's saying that God would justify the nations, that in you all nations shall be blessed. And so what is Paul doing here? I think he's doing two things. I think one, one, he's going back, he's going back to before circumcision existed and saying, listen, it cannot be Jesus plus circumcision. Because he just, he just quoted Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 making his case. And do you know that when, uh, do you know when, when circumcision came into being? Genesis 17. So Paul goes back to before Genesis 17, 12 and 15, before circumcision even was a thing and says, it cannot be Jesus plus circumcision. Look back at Abraham, it was never that way. It was never that way. Second, second, he's saying that God's heart, God's heart for humanity, it's not bound by geographic borders. He's saying that from the beginning, it was always God's heart for men, women, and children from every nation under the sun to share the faith of Abraham and be brought into a relationship with God. Every nation under the sun. Physically speaking, there is no chosen nation. There is no chosen race. God does not love America and hate China. God is not a Texan, even if I am, any more than he's a Californian. God is a global God. And from the beginning, God's heart was set on men, women, and children from every nation under the sun, from Texas to California to Canada. He is a global God and has always been. And when this sinks into you, when this grips your heart, when this makes its way, penetrates deep into that chest of yours, you see this, that there is no room for racism or cultural elitism in the church. None whatsoever. Racism is undercut at its core. You see that you don't look at your race as elite to other races. And listen, if you are unaware, that is not just an American problem. That is a global problem. And if I began to try to illustrate that, we would run out of time. The clock is moving back there. That is a global problem, and this erodes it at its core. A cursory glance at American politics and here's what you'll find. You find urban looking down on rural, rural judging urban. Not in the church. Not in the church. Or how about this one? I, 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 I mentioned I'm, I'm from Houston. So as a good Houstonian, I was born and bred to hate all things Dallas. Can I get out? Get, And here's what I heard growing up. Those Dallasites. Oh, they're so snotty. $30,000 millionaires walking around feeling like they're elite, judging everyone. While my family was judging those Dallasites for judging us from Houston. 
Why do we do this? Why is this the story of the world? Why? Because we are legalist at our core and we like to feel superior. I mean, to feel superior feels so good, doesn't it? No amens on that one. It's true. I like feeling superior and so do you. And the story where Paul takes us back to the beginning with Abraham undercuts that at its core. It's in me, it's in you, and it's why Paul gets so explicit in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For righteous, for the righteous shall live by faith. When you hear law, think God's moral standard, the teachings of what to do and not to do. And then often, too often, we treat the law as if it's bad, as if it's not good. But if I could quote my hero, Tim Keller, that's what he says. The law of God is never given just to be obeyed. It always forms the basis of a relationship. That's the reason there are curses and blessings. The curses are always the loss of relationship. The blessing is always the intimacy of relationship. At the heart of every relationship is law. And then he went on to say, let me give you an illustration that's going to be pretty funny, but the illustration wasn't funny, and so I'm going to give you my own that's also not going to be funny. My, my wife and I have very different stories about how we started dating. But at one point, um, we were friends, and when we were friends, I was free to date anybody that I wanted to. And I tried, and they all said no. <laughs> and then we started dating, and I was a little bit less free. And then as we got more serious, I was even less free. And then one day we got married, and all of a sudden, I'm not free at all anymore. Because there are distinct rules that come with marriage. But those marriage, or those rules in marriage are to create and flow from a relationship. Rules in marriage are about relationship. Now this is key. In marriage, the rules, the rules do not create the relationship. They flow from the relationship. They don't make you married. You have them because you are married. They form the basis. They do not create a marriage. Let me give you another example. I feel like I got muddy on that one. Let me back up and be clear. But the rules in marriage don't make us married. We follow them because we are married, because they fuel the relationship. They don't create a relationship. Here's another example. I have four kids. Four kids. The joke in my home is that my kids went like this in order. Rule follower, rule bender, rule breaker, criminal. And I have rules for my kids because they are my kids. If your kids begin to follow my rules for my kids, that does not make your kids my kids. I have rules for my kids because they are my kids, because rules flow from the relationship. They don't create a relationship. And in the same way, God's rules do not bring you into relationship with God. They flow from the relationship. They don't create the relationship. But here's the question. If they are God's rules... Why not? If they are God's rules for the world, why is following them not enough to bring you into a relationship with God? And the answer, the answer is because the law doesn't have the power to do that. 
The law does not have the power to heal. The, the fracture between man and God, it does not get healed by the law. It doesn't have that kind of power. The law, the law is like an MRI machine. It can reveal the tumor. It cannot heal the cancer. 2013, I was standing at a, a train station in Dallas for the, the rail to go downtown. My kids love getting on it. And my phone rang, and I answered it, and the opening line was this, Mr. Barker, the thing we thought was a cyst is actually a rare malignant tumor. We need to get to, to Baylor Hospital this week. And they can put scans on a screen that reveal the tumor. But what was sitting on a screen had absolutely no power to heal the cancer in my body. None whatsoever. The law can expose. It cannot heal. So what can? Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here is what can heal what is broken inside of you and inside of me. It's Jesus climbing on a cross and becoming a curse for you and for me. Do you know what the ultimate curse was in the Old Testament for Israel? Here was the ultimate curse. It was exile. The kind of exile where you lost the presence of God. When it says he became a curse, this is what it's saying, that when he climbed on the tree, Jesus was experiencing the exile from God, the complete and total separation. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing exile from the Father in that moment. And here's what he was not doing. He was not empowering you to then go and live a good enough life to be accepted by God. He was standing in the gap for you because you can't. You're standing in the gap for you and for me because you can't do enough good to earn the embrace of the Father. He was rejected so that you could be accepted so that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations. That's you and that's me. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you have been united to Christ. You have the same acceptance of Abraham for the same reason that Abraham had it. And here is what this means for you. In the eyes of the Father, you are not a people. You are my people. My, my son plays the violin. He's pretty good at it too. And when we go to one of his orchestra events, there, there might be 30 or 40 kids up there, and I, I get in, and I scan, and I'm looking, and I see kid after kid, and I'm, I'm just proud of all of them. But then when I look, and I see my son, Easton John Barker, my eyes get fixed on him because he is not a kid in that orchestra. He is my kid. He is my son. My daughter, who does gymnastics, when, when we take her, and, and she's doing the tumbling, or I don't know what they call it, all of it, but whenever she's at her practice and I see these 30, 40, 50 girls out there practicing and I look out and eventually I find Amelia Quinn Barker, who is not a 
child to me. She's not a daughter, she's my daughter. When the father looks at you, he does not see a son or a daughter, he sees my son, my daughter. It means his heart was fixed on making you a son or a daughter long before you had that past you're ashamed of. Long before you had done all that you are humiliated of that no one in this room could ever know about it. Because all the rejection you could ever deserve fell on Jesus when he experienced the exile of the curse for you. Because he did, because he did, the Father can look at you and say, I love you because I love you because I love you. Why why do I love you? Because I love you. Because I do. And when we trace this from Abraham to Jesus to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we find a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Because from Genesis to Revelation, the heart of God has always been to turn the globe into a home shared with men women, and children from every nation under the sun. The end of the Bible is a recreated world where men, women, children from Midland, Texas are worshiping with men, women, and children from Iraq, from Mexico, from Canada, even California. Also, I thought that was funnier. And if you're in here and you are saying, I just don't know that I believe this story. But I do know this. I've been trying to be good enough for God. I've been trying to do enough of the right things in life to feel like I knew God is going to accept me. It's time for you to look at Jesus' death and realize that you are more broken than you could possibly believe just like the rest of us. And you are more loved and wanted than you could possibly fathom, just like the rest of us. And Redeemer Midland, it it means with all that you have, resist the temptation to believe a Jesus plus gospel. Resist the the attractiveness of a Jesus plus gospel so that you can fully worship the Jesus who did it all for you. This is why community, one another, is so important. Because listen, left to your own, left to your own, you will drift into believing Jesus plus. That I've got to just do enough to make sure that I'm accepted by God. That's why you need community, brothers and sisters around you to remind you that you are accepted. Now go and live from that acceptance. Now listen, being known in community, which is what it takes, it's scary. It is. Like really being known, who you are, all your flaws and struggles, it's scary. but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Redeemer Midland, you you are here. God has placed you here 
in Midland, Texas in 2023 to be a continuation of the story of Abraham. This movement of God to redeem and rescue men, women, and children from every nation under the sun. We are the nations, if you don't know that. And you are here to embody this redemptive story in your families, on your street, where you work, where you play, where you worship. Because the city of Midland, your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you go to restaurants with and that you live next to, what they need is a community who believes a Jesus plus nothing gospel. A a community that really believes and embodies that Jesus has done it all. Because they they already believe that I've got to do enough, that if I do enough good, if I'm in that top half of the class at the end of my life, God's going to accept me. They need to see that that is not true. They need to see it in a community who believes a Jesus plus nothing gospel because Jesus has done it all. Uh, In this redemptive story, it's why we at the Redeemer Network, which includes Redeemer Midlands, are so passionate about the planting and replanting and revitalizing of healthy churches so that men, women, and children in city after city, in town after town, suburb after suburb, who are searching for a God they have yet to find can be found by the one who did it all for them. So who does God accept and why? Men, women, and children from every nation under the sun who have been united to the resurrected Christ. Because the heart of God has always been from the very beginning to turn the globe into a home shared with men, women, and children from every nation under the sun. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to open up Galatians 3 to talk about Galatians 3, for you to speak through Galatians 3 to the hearts of men, women, and children gathering together here today as Redeemer Midlands. I pray that you would help us to resist and fight the temptation, the desire, the pull to a Jesus plus gospel. Help us be a people, help us be a people, help this community lean into one another and embrace embrace the reality that Jesus has done it all. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.